This is the first week of a brand new sermon series, Ask Me Why, and we're talking about why do we have churches, or essentially, why do we go to church? This first series looks at why do we start churches, and why is that a good thing? This series was originally started at Castle Rock Middle School, January 25th, 2015. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, We start a brand new sermon series today, Ask Me Why, and uh, you saw some amazing buttons. If you don't have a button, I've got buttons, so uh, we've got some in the back. Ask Me Why, and here's the idea behind it. You're saying, like, what is this even about? It's actually changed from the original, but now this is what it's about. Uh, It's about this. Uh, You get questions that people come to you, if you live your life as a Christian, I should say it that way. People are going to ask you questions like, why? Like, why do you do the things you do? Why do you function the way you function? Why, why is this stuff important to you? The gist of this series, I mean, we're going to spend some time in it, kind of dissecting a little bit, but the gist of it is this. Like, why do you go to church? Anyone ever ask you that? I get that, because I talk to people, I'm like, hey, you should come to church, and they're like, eh. You know, like, why? If you have no response, it's a little bit difficult, right? So, that's kind of the gist of that. But before we even get to that, so we'll talk about things like why do you worship? Why do you uh, serve other people? Why do you even give money to an organization? Why do, you, um, why do you go to church? I mean, that's kind of what it's about. But before we can even get there, we have to answer this question, why are there churches? You ever wonder that? Like, why, of all the ways that God could have done things, like, why do we do churches? The, we don't have, like, uh, rallies. We don't do things like that. We have, like, churches with ordinary people like us. So, The single greatest thing that you can do to reach more people is to start churches. If you want to sound smart, here's a rule of thumb. Um, You have to add initials when you write things down, like G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien, or you could write J. Jacob Oldenburg. Does that sound smarter? Right? Uh, Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, this is what all the smart people are doing. So... And a whole bunch of other people. So specifically to our context, so we're going to have a little lesson on like why exactly do you start a church? Because we're in the kind of this new phase. We'll have a little bit of lesson on that. Not the whole thing, but then we'll get into the fact like why does the Holy Spirit of all possible means choose to say let's do churches? Let's do it this way. So first thing that we're going to look at is why more churches. This is what I got when I came here. You know, you're really excited to start this church. You think this is going to be the coolest. And you run into people and you're like, hey, we're starting a church in the area. Why'd you move here, they ask. Uh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. What do you do? I start churches. I start this church, I should say. And usually they kind of go like, um, we have enough churches. Like, you ever look around? There's a lot of churches around. This is a hot spot. Castle Rock is cool enough to live in that there is, I, I was starting a church. I met the wife of another church planter. That's what they call it. And she said, oh, welcome to the church planter graveyard. Now, I've never seen it described like that in the Chamber of Commerce, but she was saying there's so many people that come here, they want to start these churches. Why is it, uh, we've got enough churches, why would you bother? This makes sense, actually, it's a good argument. Because in the secular world, if any of you are involved, like in a business or something like that, you know you can't just keep sending types of businesses into an area. I got a friend who's on our softball team, and he and his wife own a dentist office. I mentioned to him that another friend of ours was going to open an orthodontics office. Okay, you see, this is all in the teeth realm. I'm trying to make the theme match. And he's like, wow, that's crazy. I'm like, what? He's like, besides chiropractors, I think we got enough orthodontics and dentist office in Castle Rock. So they did it. They do these metrics or whatever you'd call it. They determine, like, how many can we actually sustain? We want a grocery store, right, in the meadows if you live here. They have their own metrics that say, like, it's not sustainable at this point to move one in here. Uh, a friend who's in the banking industry, when the AN, what's that bank called, AN? 
B, hand B? I don't go there. Um, I only got enough money for one bank. You know, I, can't, I don't have to disperse it anywhere. But A and B, he, it, their metrics, they said that's a terrible spot for a bank. That doesn't make sense. They probably overpaid for the land. It's probably not going to sustain itself very well. That's his opinion. So it does make sense on some level. Like, why would you start a church where there's a bunch of churches? Uh, example number two that people say is attendance and declining. This kind of gets into the, the, the realm of um, my wife. She works in the library system, and uh, they're building new libraries, if you didn't know that. They're building a brand new one in Castle Pines, building a brand new one in Lone Tree. They're building a brand new one. This is our county. Uh, building a brand new one in Parker. I have been there, so I can't imagine how many times she's been asked this question. I have been there probably 150 times when someone goes, why are we building new libraries when they're going to be obsolete? Like, why are we doing this when fewer people are going to the libraries? Does that make sense? Church world is actually the same. The churches that we have are not so full, like we're out of room. Like our school district is full. Just uh, permit one thing, because I have to listen, get to, get to, get to listen to this on the boards that I'm listening to. Um, we have a mill levy that's going, I'm not preaching politics, but I'm just informing you. We have a mill levy for our school district, Douglas County, that runs out um, soon. I think it might actually almost be done. We're out of money in it, regardless. That's a 200, um, they have $280 million of repairs they need to do our current schools. 280 million. This mill levy is done because the last one didn't pass, and they're hoping to pass the next one to get 200 million to at least kind of make some he- segue or uh, headway on this. Okay, does that make some sense? And the stopgap this situation, if you're wondering why there's like uh, charter schools and things like that, it's cheaper for the school to say we'll give you X amount per kid if you go build the building because we actually have no money to go build a building. Is this making sense? That's not how it is with churches. Like, we are not so, so many kids have moved to our area that we need more room for our schools. That's not how it is with churches. Like, our churches on a Sunday are not like wall to wall. We can do that. We can make the walls come in. That's one of the features that we have here. It's just like the trash compactor in Star Wars. You know, like, if you start feeling that, that's just so you feel, like, loved. That's what we do. So we can do that, but most churches are not like wall to wall because declining in, like, across America, and if you meet your friends, there's little and fewer and fewer and less and less interest in churches. So, like, why would you start a church when attendance is declining? Third one that I actually get is, uh, why don't we just help the churches? This would, in the school district um, analogy, you'd say, why don't we just invest the money we do have into the current schools that we have to make them better? The answer to all these is, again, that the best way that you reach people who are outside the doors of a church is starting new churches. That's just how it works. I'll give you some examples. Um, if you look at, um, like, why would we answer? The short answer is probably this, though. Jesus says, go start churches. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I command you. Jesus not only commands us to do this, but you can look at the example of how it kind of functioned in the New Testament church. We've got the Apostle Paul. He's like a theologian. He's a missiologist. That means big fancy word to mean like he studies how missions work. Um, he's a writer. He would travel around, he'd go to the biggest city, he'd stop at the synagogue, and then he would start a new church. He'd be there for a little bit, and he'd take off. This is not like a segue to say, I'm getting ready to take off. I'm not. He did it that way. He was inspired by God. I really like it here. I'm not going anywhere. So th- that's my theory. Um, so, but the Apostle Paul, he would be there for a little bit, sometimes months, and then he would take off. He'd appoint elders. They're gone. They start this church. They're gone. Just like that. So we see this pattern that the way that you handle... Um, people who are starting to grow in their faith, who have an interest in the faith, is through this kind of safety net in a sense of a church. This happens a lot. Billy Graham, if you've ever heard of Billy Graham, 
he's probably seen more people, and I don't know how to say it in a, a good way, but I, I mean a great way maybe. Um, he's probably seen more people make a commitment in the sense that's, that the Holy Spirit has worked on their heart, and they say, you know, I have sinfulness, and I want to have the, a growing relationship with God. He's seen that happen more than any other human. But he recognized as he went to like rallies, and it went from tents in the beginning, and then it went to like stadiums, he recognized by the end of his career, he said, you can't, this can't be like following the Grateful Dead or Fish or Dave Matthews. You can't be like a Billy Graham groupie around the nation. You need a church. And so at the end of all these things, he, they point them. They've got these massive counselors when they would do these rallies, and they would point people to find a local church so that they can have a community of believers. So this is kind of where it shakes down to. And on top of that, what does this mean when it shakes out? This is still a lesson on starting churches, and we'll get to why the Holy Spirit starts churches. They did a survey, and it, they did five-year-old churches. We're three and a half years old. So they did five-year-old churches. They said, how many of your members are, like, weren't in a church or were unchurched before this? The answer is two-thirds at a five-year-old church. Can you guess where most of the growth comes from from a church that's just 10 years old? So we just had one that was in kindergarten. Now we've got one that's in fifth grade. We're not even in preschool yet, so don't even worry about it. Yeah, so 80 to 90% of their growth happens from transfers from other churches, which is, means this is just how it functions. If you want to reach a new demographic of people, if you want to reach some people, the fastest way and the best way to do that is start new churches. That's just how it works because not in a bad way necessarily. There's a consistency that happens once you become an organization. I wouldn't think we would describe churches, and think of the church you grew up in if you grew up in a church. Would you describe it as like a nimble ninja? You know, like different things would come and they'd be like, yes, we will we'll change course. You know, and that's good, right? You don't want your church changing like every single week, every single month. That's not good. We're, we're not exactly nimble. In fact, the churches are probably the slowest thing to change you know, like Walmart is huge and they change. You know, like these giant stores change, business change because they need to make money. If they don't change, they go out of business and then they get written about by like uh, in Colin's book, A Good to Great and things like that. That's what happens if you don't change. Like Kodak didn't change and now it's going down the tubes, things like that. Churches are slow. The immigrants, um, we have a church in Michigan that just recently, this is, I'll just pick on our church body, that just recently in the last, I think, five years stopped having services in German. Now, now, people did come at the turn of the century that spoke German. Do you think if you go to Benton Harbor, Michigan, you'd go to the grocery store and you'd have to think, like, should I speak German or English? No. <laughs> You're wondering, would you want to go to Benton Harbor, Michigan? I'm wondering the same thing as someone from Michigan, but I, 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 I'll just take people's word for it. But I'm guessing they don't speak German when you go to the grocery store, right? It's not called uh, their Walmart. I don't think that's what it, it's not going to be called that. It'd be called the Walmart because it's feminine. No, no. So the, you know, that's not how it works, right? It, it, we're the last ones to go. I'll give you another example. Yakima, Washington. Well, it is so faded. There's actually an outline of a state. You just can't see it. It just looks like I made a baseball jersey with Yakima on it. Okay, so Yakima, Washington is up in Washington, and they had migrant workers that would come, and they'd come up the whole coast. So when I was there, they would come up through California. They harvest the strawberries like in May, and you get the wine country like Napa. That's further north. They'd make their way all the way to Washington that had peaches and were really famous for in Washington apples, right? So this is where now suddenly the harvest is done. There's nothing left. And so many of these Latino workers, Latina workers, would stop and they'd stay in Yakima, Washington. So if you go downtown Yakima, Washington, there is a large Latino or Hispanic population. 
if you went step foot into our church that we have in downtown Washington, how do you think you would describe the members that are there? Would you say Latino or Blanco? The whole church is white old people. So, I, no, sorry, white elderly people, Caucasian people who are mature. Okay, so that's, you know, man, I was so worried about getting Hispanic and Latino right that I got the, I messed it up. So, but five years ago, we called a pastor that knew Spanish, actually, and, but just think about the difference. That's a church that's maybe 50 years old or older. What happens if we would go start a church today in downtown Yakima, Washington? Obviously, we would make sure that this person or the people who are, they know Spanish, and they're going to reach out to the people who are actually there. We could talk about this longer than you want to talk about it. Probably not longer than I want to talk about it, but longer than you want to talk about it. That it's just the way that you reach people. But at the end of the day, why is it the Holy Spirit chose churches? This is why. The Bible equals relationships. It's not about, um, the Bible at its heart is relationships, and I'm going to give you a number of examples. Number one, when Jesus summarizes all of the laws of the Bible, how does he do it? It's in terms of relationship, right? Love the Lord your God, relationship like this, with all your heart and soul and mind, and love your neighbor, relationships going this way, as yourself. We've described it when we were preaching on marriage. We said you have to have a relationship with God that's right before you can have a relationship with your family that's right, before you can have a relationship with other people that's right. You could say God, as I've heard another person say it, God, family, others. If you mix that pyramid up and you make this like your kids, God, it's going to mess up your relationship with God and you mess up your relationship with your wife. Does this all make, or husband? Make sense? Okay. So the Bible is completely about relationships when you read about it. And the Bible goes on and on about um, fundamentally this relationships. It's not about a how-to manual. This is how you're going to live. When you read the Bible, it's more, uh, this is how important, I'll say it this way. This is how important creating God's community is in the local church. If you dissect, and I don't do this, a guy named Brian Hathaway did this. If you dissect the New Testament and you determine like percentages, how much percentage do you think is devoted to telling us how we should treat one another? 44. And if I ask you again, how much do you think is devoted to spiritual gifts that you have? Four. So in other words, God's in, in his inspired writers, as the Apostle Paul oftentimes writes to people, he's saying, this is how you should treat one another. This is talking about relationships. This is, um, so I'm going to give you an example, and I think it'll, it'll come through at the end. Here's my worry as I try this experiment. You never know, you go to like a, a concert at the city park, and someone decides they want to clap during a song, and the song is way longer than you think. And then you're like, this guy, like, oh, when's the song end? I, I just can't wait to stop clapping. You don't even listen to music. I'm not going to make you clap. But I want you to do this in your head, okay? So I've got a number of examples, like 15 plus. When I pause and go like this, you don't have to clap, but just think in your head at least. You can even mumble one another, okay? This is how often this concept comes up in the New Testament. This is uh, John chapter 13, but this happens 16 other times. Love one another, okay? So I don't want you to start strong and then end a week. That's going to be ending. So later on, I'm going to encourage you to at least end the last one strong. So love one another. Be devoted to, in Romans 12, it says, be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build one another up. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept, kids and teens, accept one another. 
This is where it starts to get a little bit serious, though. Now it says, admonish one another. You've got to love someone a lot before you're willing to say, listen, the thing that you're doing isn't right. You can complain about driving all you want, but if you really love someone, you're going to say, you're going down the wrong path and I don't think this is good. That's where love starts to come through. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another. We just preached on this last week. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. We did that during marriage. Uh, We currently do that during marriage. Um, Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Stir one another up to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts that God has given for the benefit of one another. And now we can say it out loud because we only got like three left. Pray for one another. There we go. Confess our faults to one another. Now that's talking serious stuff too. How many people do you know well enough that you're willing to admit your faults and your sins? Now we're talking about real relationships. And you don't have to repeat anymore. Um, We do all these things because we belong to one another. That's what family is about. And the... When you think of, like, the greatest communities in the Bible, remember when we preached in Acts? And the church explodes. It hits, like, Jesus ascends, and we hit the Pentecost. And there's 50, uh, 120 people suddenly becomes 3,120 people. And then it sounds really weird a little bit. It says they committed themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And part of that was the word common, they had things in common. They shared their stuff in common. It was like a commune. That's where we get that word from. You get the word koine. If you've heard of the band koine, that means common. The word for fellowship, and the reason I bring this up, is koinonia. That means common. As a church, group of churches, typically, we do the teaching part really awesome. We got an incredible seminary. We got incredible college. We've got uh, prep schools. We've got a school, like I went to a Lutheran high school. We've got over 20 of those around the country. We've got elementary schools. We've got preschools that are changing lives. We do the teaching part really, really well. That's what we do. But there's another part to it that says fellowship. I don't know if we're so great at that. When almost half the Bible talks about how you treat one another to bring someone into a sense of community. You can teach and teach and teach, and Jesus does teach that. He says, make disciples. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. But there's another aspect to it that says when you get together, there's a sense of building each other up. It's called fellowship, koinonia. And the reason that we have this beautiful fellowship that is so cool is it's when you have something in common. We have the same Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? We worship the same God who created the earth. That's our Apostles' Creed. We admit this. We admit this. We confess this is probably a better way to say that. We have the same Savior who's taken all our sins away. With this we have in common with the Holy Spirit, the same one that has worked this faith in our heart. We have the sameness that says that we are united. The, the problem, though, is once we start looking at all the ways that we can build community, we haven't even got to, and, we, and you, when you look at what is it that breaks up community, and I think Oftentimes, if you look at relationships that are not great, just like we're really good at teaching, I think personally as human beings, we're really good at pointing out where the other person has messed up. If you take a real close examination, if I said, how's work life? How many of you just pictured a boss that really annoys you? 
you're thinking of someone, right? I mean, you're thinking of it's their fault. If you're in a marriage that uh, has some struggles, are, is the first thought that you have is how you've messed up or is your first thought like, why can't they be more fill-in-the-blank? You have problems with relationships or a brother or a sister or an aunt or an uncle, and you think immediately, what have they done? Well, the Apostle Paul sometimes, most of it's positive. He says to build each other up, live uh, and honor each other, forgive each other. Sometimes he actually parents like we parent. You know when you're tired, you don't really stay on the positive end. You say, like, don't jump on the couch. Or you say, be nice to your sister. Or don't run with scissors. Or quit poking that person, right? You just get tired. The Apostle Paul does that thing. And he narrows down some things. He says the sinful mind is, talking about what causes some of this difficulty, full of hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. None of us have perfect relationships, but if you talk about relationships that are not right, whose fault is it? I'd say it's our fault. And, it, and we talked about that in marriage. If you start to shift and say, if there's a problem in this community that I have with my neighbors, there's a problem with my wife or my husband, there's a problem at work, if you start looking to say, how am I contributing to this problem, that's going to start shifting some something. And you're going to start to recognize, I'm not all that awesome and you're going to start to recognize how awesome it is to have a Savior who says, I accept you. Just in the way the world functions, this is Stephen Covey. I thought of this because my wife had a book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens, she got for my daughter. I didn't read it. I've read the other one for adults because I'm more mature. Uh, but he says, no amount of technical administrative skill in laboring for the masses can make up for a lack of nobility of personal character in developing relationships. That's kind of a long way to say what? He's saying, I don't care how good you are at your job. Like, if you can do the right things, that's great. Good for you. But if you don't have the maturity to have a character that is building relationships, you're not all that useful to my company if I had a company. I don't care how well you can sell. If you're a jerk, I don't want you on the team. It's just not it, that the way that... Uh, well, I won't quote another business book because we're here to talk about the Bible. But this is the idea. And the idea is this. If you're mature, you're building into relationships, and if you want to build in relationships, you first have to look at yourself. And the only way you can truly be honest with yourself is if you know you have a Savior who says, I accept you for who you are, unconditionally and unjustified, no matter where you are and what you've done, I have fully accepted you. Only then are you empowered to give in to something else. I've wasted my life. I'll just let that pause. Uh, I was listening to a TED Talk. How many of you listen to TED Talks? Makes me feel smart. You know, it's, and it's really short. You're ADHD, it's like 17 minutes. You're like, Pastor, you should probably do more like TED Talks. Um, so it's only 17 minutes, and um, I was listening to one by Professor Dwak. I think that's how you said D-W-A-C-K, I think was her name. Hers was only like seven minutes long, and she spoke incredibly slow. So I think it, she had like a three-minute TED Talk that stretched into seven. But she got a letter, so this is what it's about, and I'm going to apply this to what we're talking about. She was emphasizing this idea of yet, and she said there was a school in Chicago that is, um, instead, when they, they had courses, they had a pass, and when they failed, it didn't say like F minus, it said not yet. So she was emphasizing this idea that you can instill in kids that it's not just about the end goal, but it's about the process. So praise the process. You've probably heard this. Malcolm Gladwell talks about it. Um, she talked about it as if it was like this brand new idea. But and this is this idea that you don't praise like way to get an A. You praise like way to work hard 
way to focus, way to um, struggle through this and do well. So they said the kids that they encouraged to do that, who emphasized the process, in the end did better because they recognized, like, here isn't the ceiling. You know, my brain can still grow and I can still learn, okay? So she got a letter from a 13-year-old boy. It said, Dear Professor Dwack, I appreciate that your writing is based on solid scientific research. I love this. I should say he got, he got a letter that was proofread by his engineer dad. Okay, so I appreciate that your writing is based on solid scientific research, and that is why I've decided to put it into practice. I put more effort in my schoolwork, my relationships in my family, and into my relationships with kids at school, and I experienced great improvement in all of those areas. I now realize that I have wasted most of my life which is pretty funny for a 13-year-old. The reason I bring this up, do you ever feel like in your church life and the sense of community you've had in different organizations on some level, you've kind of wasted your life? I've been part of a lot of churches. And some churches, um, we follow that. You know, you put, look at the process, you know that this is going to take some effort and the more I invested, the more that came from it as I found Christians that would rally around me when things weren't good, and they would rally and, and pray for me when things aren't, and they would be there. But there's also organizations we've been involved in that it was pretty quick to point out, like, why aren't they reaching out to me? Why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like this. And in my mind, I think I wasted my life there. When we talk community, and that's what we're going to be talking about essentially over these next eight weeks. When we talk community, community is not like the end goal, like an A. Community is something that you say, I want to invest in this process that's going to be uh, sometimes hard, sometimes frustrating. But if you actually have a real relationship with someone where you're forgiving and loving and praying for and uplifting someone, that takes work. And you've got to be willing to take the next step. Just imagine how awesome it would be if we had a group of Christians, because that's all Christian, and that's what a church is, right? A group of Christians who are just normal people, who have been touched by an amazing gospel, who got to be part of a community and get to, in a tangible way, show the love that one day is going to be real. One day you're going to be in God's presence, and one day he is going to be the one who is going to hug you, and he is going to be the one who is there. We just get to see a taste of it here. And God used to use your hands and your words and your mouth to touch some other people and make a difference in their life. And it's not just about me. It's about what can I do to make contact with other people. One of the saddest stories, I think, in the Bible is this, the parable, not the parable, the story of the ten lepers, right? You have these guys, that they had to yell, leper, 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 when people would get close. Think how awful that would be. No one wanted to get near them. And it's Jesus who comes with a miracle and takes away that stigma that they had and takes away that disease so they can now interact with a group. If you ever go to Alcatraz, they say it's close enough that they would be in prison and they could hear what was actually happening in the real community. We don't want to be outside the community, do we? We have a Savior, the same Savior that we have in common who has taken our sins away, who has made us different and has put us into a community and taking away all the stigmas that we can be real with each other, we can be honest with each other, we can build each other up and say, hey, we're in this together to try and do what? Reach the people who aren't part of this community so that they can know the same Savior that we have. Amen.
Uh, Heavenly Father, it is so difficult to be part of really any community, and as we look at what you've done for us, uh, we're humbled. There's no reason why you should forgive us. There's no reason why uh, you should welcome us into your house, but you have. Help us in that appreciation to accept people as you say, um, as you have accepted us. Help us accept just anybody and help us build them up and look outside of our own self, but instead look outside to where people don't have a relationship with you and how we can be your arms and your hands and your voice as we encourage and lift each other up in this community. Amen.